Paul is writing to his friends in Thessalonica, and best we can tell, he's writing from Corinth. I wonder how much of what he wrote to the Thessalonians was influenced by what he saw in Corinth. When he writes to the Corinthians themselves, he tells them this in 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So he says to the Corinthians, who were a mixed lot, who were still troubled by remaining sin, what he says to them is, this is who you were. This is not any longer who you fundamentally are. You've been changed. You are no longer those things. And if you read much of the first letter to the Corinthians, you know that the Corinthians were not done becoming what they actually were. They had much more becoming to be. The expectation that the Bible lays out for us as, as a gift of the new covenant, the new arrangement that God has made with his people, the gift of the new covenant is that we would continue to change until the day when Christ completes the process of our change. Uh, we just sang about that. It was a perfect, a perfect choice for in preparation for the passage that we're looking at in 1 Thessalonians this morning. Here's the process described, the process of change, the process of sanctification. This is in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Being transformed, one degree of glory to another, which means there is glory. For somebody who trusts in Jesus, there is real glory there. The glory of God is there. The image of God is, is beginning to be restored in that person. And there's always more degrees of glory. There's always more of the image of God to show. It's an awkward place to be. It's an, it's an in-between time. This time when, when God has given us his spirit, he's given us a longing for holiness. He's given us some actual holiness in our lives. He's begun to change us and we know it's not complete. And we long for it to be complete. And, and as we stand in that awkward place, uh, we, we, we long for it to be a little bit simpler, don't we? And sometimes we go in for simpler answers, simpler solutions. Could be things like, well, I'm saved by grace, so now I can just do whatever I want. It really doesn't matter at all how I live. That would be simpler. It's a simpler answer. It's easier to make sense of in our brains. 
Or maybe it's, maybe it's the other way entirely. Maybe it's, Lord, just fix me now. Would you please finish the process now? Make this simpler for me. Just make me better all at once. Maybe it's, I'm so much better than I was that, that I, I must be basically done. I look back and see what I was like before, and, and now I, I, I must be good enough at least because I'm way better than I was. Or maybe it's, I'm so much better than that other guy that I must be basically done. I know I'm not perfect yet, but I can kind of settle in now because I'm not like that guy anymore. And maybe on the other hand, it's, I'm still not done. I've been at this for 5, 10, 40, 50 years, and I still find deep trouble inside myself. Maybe my behavior is better than it used to be. Maybe people look at me as an example, but I look inside myself. I consider my own thoughts, my own priorities, my own selfishness, and I think, am I a fraud? Am I done or am I hopeless? No, we're not done and we're not hopeless if we're in Jesus. And that's exactly where Paul finds the Thessalonians. And he says to them, you are new. You're made new and you are beginning to show that you're made new. You're obeying the things that we told you to do and you're doing well and there is more well to do. So we're going to find a phrase repeated in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 12. And, and it's the phrase, do so more and more. The New American Standard, I think, captures the, 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 way, the phrase that Paul uses when, when it translates it, excel still more. Thessalonians, you're doing well. And there is more well for you to do. And it's all good news for you. And it's intensely practical. So Paul is going to call the Thessalonians to do what he's already called them to do. This is instruction that he's given them while he was among them in person. He says, you're doing it, and I want you to excel still more. He moves into the section of describing what normal life should be like for a believer in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 12. So I want to read that text first, and then we'll consider what it means. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, 
and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You hear as, as you listen to Paul deal with this very practical instruction that Paul is not telling the Thessalonians, look, you've, you've got to arrive. You've got to be finished. You've got to be done. He's not so much talking about location as he's talking about direction. You're moving in the direction of being the new people that God has made you to be. And I want you to keep moving in that direction because that's what God has for you. Keep becoming the people of God. And the specific principle for becoming the people of God is love each other, don't use each other. Love each other, don't use each other. He says, this is what we've told you already. When we were among you, we gave you instructions from God. They're not our own instructions. We gave them to you through Jesus. He's the one who's made it possible for you to obey these instructions. And we're just telling you the same things that we told you when we were among you. And he he gives the general call to excelling still more in this obedience in verses 1 and 2. It says, finally, or uh, for the rest, or here's what's left to say. He's, he spent a long time rehearsing his relationship with the Thessalonians. They mattered deeply to him. And, and he wanted to remind them now of the instruction that he'd given them while he was among them. Very practical instruction. He says, this is what you received from us. It hasn't changed. It's the same instruction and you're doing it. You, we, we, we were teaching you how to walk and to please God, verse 1. And he says, you're doing it. Do, do you ever, when, when you think about behaving in a way that pleases God, or have you ever had somebody tell you, you know, what you're doing pleases God, do you have an impulse to say, well, well no, no, I, I'm, I'm just a sinner. That's, that's all that I am. Maybe you see the examples of, sinful people in the Old Testament following Moses and have an impulse to say, well, I'm, I'm no better. Well, in, in, in the sense of our own ability to do things on our own, that's true. We're, we're, we're no more able to do things on our own. And yet, Paul says to the Thessalonians, this is what you are doing. You are walking so as to please God. God has done something in you by his grace so that you actually now have the ability to do things that really do please him from a heart that really does please him. Not perfectly, but actually. And I want you to do it increasingly. You have that set before you. You really can, because of God's grace in Christ, you really can have a heart and a life that pleases him more and more. There are two specific practical categories of living in such a way as to please God increasingly by loving people rather than using people. And that's what we're going to see in verses 3 through 12. Two specific categories. Paul says, I want you to be sexually pure in verses 3 through 8. 
and I want you to be quietly productive. Verses 9 through 12. God is remaking people. He promised that he was going to do that. Now he's doing it. He's doing it through Jesus. And as he remakes people, he brings them back to his original design for them. He says, I want you to be sexually pure and I want you to be quietly productive, which echoes the original design for humanity. He had an original design for marriage and he had an original design for work. And we see both of those together in Genesis 2. Genesis 2.15, the design for work, uh, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So work is, is not part of the curse. Work is cursed because of sin, but work itself is not part of the curse. Work is part of the blessing. Work is part of what we do as bearers of God's image. And it was not good for a man to be a part of that alone. The Lord God said, verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him, suited to him, corresponding to him. So God made for Adam a wife. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God's original design for sexuality. God's original design for marriage. And God's original design for work. And he is restoring it in people. He's restoring his image in people. And so that's what Paul returns to as he lays out some basic instructions for Christian life for the Thessalonians. We see the first one in verses 3 through 8. It says, I want you to do so more and more. I want you to love one another rather than using one another in sexual purity. He says in verse 3, abstain from sexual immorality. Now, when we put together the basic biblical teaching on what sexual immorality is, we find that the, as, it's, as it's fleshed out in the New Testament, it also matches the original design that's described in Genesis 2. That sexual immorality that we're supposed to abstain from includes all forms of sexual activity outside of marriage. Really pretty simple. All forms of sexual activity outside of marriage. And to be clear, which we have to be in our day, marriage, real marriage, is always between a man and a woman. Original design, Genesis 2. So Paul says, in effect, by abstain from sexual immorality, stay away from sexual activity outside the boundaries of marriage. That wasn't normal. It wasn't new for the Thessalonians because Paul had taught them about it, but it, it wasn't normal for them in their culture, especially among the men. It was really common for men to have uh, multiple sexual partners outside of their marriage. It wasn't normal for them to be faithful to their wives. And Christ is making a new normal for them. He's restoring them to the image of God in its original form, and even in a better form than what was original. 
And, and so when Paul says abstain from sexual immorality, this is not an arbitrary rule. This is not God showing up and saying, uh, here's, here's your list. Here are some of the things that uh, I want you to do and things that I want you to not do. This is not just an arbitrary rule about behavior. It's a matter of being remade. It's a matter of the heart. And so we see that really in verses four through six, that it's an attitude issue. It takes self-control, verses four and five. And it takes a concern for mutual justice in verse six, not defrauding one another. Don't use one another. Love one another. So verse four, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Here's what it takes that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So self-control, a heart attitude of self-control means not simply doing whatever you feel like which the Gentiles around them, given the opportunity, would do, living in the passion of lust. Our world has its own version of self-control. Our world has its own rules for sexual morality. They're not the same as the rules in the Bible, but they are rules, and so they can sound like they make a lot of sense. Our world has one basic rule for self-control in this category. And it's the rule of consent. Uh, Now, consent is a a good thing, agreement between people. Uh, Not forcing things with people is a good thing. Consent is a good thing in lots of categories. But consent is our world's version of self-control. You can do whatever you want with anybody as long as they agree. That's not self-control. That's not biblical self-control. Our world actually holds out an offer of imitation consent all over the place, everywhere with almost limitless availability. And it is more dangerous today than it ever has been before. Now there's consent between individuals that are in person with each other. But there is an imitation consent that's out there everywhere in the form of pornography, in the form of pornographic images. And those images, which are more available than they've ever been before, available everywhere, convey the message, I'm willing. They convey a message of consent. They convey a message that that here I am. They convey a message that I want you. And it's a fraud. It's all a fraud. The message message is a fraud. The message of willingness is a fraud. We need to see the evil that lurks behind this, this, this particular form of sexual immorality, sexual satisfaction outside of marriage. It defrauds those who are in the images. In many cases, it defrauds them because they are in them against their will. They're always in them against their best interests. Those images are always there for people to use rather than for people to love those who are in them. 
Sometimes they're a matter of, of some form of, of actual enslavement of those who are in the images. In all cases, they hurt those who are in them. And they always hurt those who use them. When, when pornography is viewed, it always infects and distorts and dangerously reshapes our thinking about people around us. It gives us the idea that people are there to be used rather than there to be loved. In, in our world, do so more and more. Pursue holiness more and more. Be like God more and more. Love people rather than using people more and more. Um, takes a lot of care. Because this is everywhere. And sometimes it's, it's sort of foisted upon us without our wanting it at all. You can, be insta- uh, you can be innocently scrolling through a social media feed, as you know, and come across something you really didn't want to see. And so in our world... In a world with all the conveniences that come with technology, uh, there are some costs as well. One of those costs is the need to be on the alert, to always be ready, to know that whether whether you're actively engaging in technology or whether you're just living in the world, these things are always regularly going to be put before us. Some image that says, I'm here for you to use me and I'm willing. They're all over the place. So we have to be ready. We have to be on the alert. We have to be prepared to say no to opportunities to use a person by using their image. This matters deeply to God. He cares about the way we use his image. And he cares about the way that we interact with bearers of his image. And so we're told in Verse 6, to be careful that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Here's God who made us as human beings in his image, the greatest privilege of a created being to bear the image of its creator. That image is broken by the rebellion of humanity God comes and says, I'm going to restore it. We actually read it uh, earlier this morning. The promise in the Old Covenant, while God's people are, are off in exile, experiencing the results of their rebellion. And he says, I'm going to give you what it takes. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the one who transgresses in this area, the one who who defiles the image of God in himself, in herself, in someone else, disregards not man, verse 8, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. It matters. So there is, there is discipline, severe discipline when necessary. Uh, Paul even says to the Corinthians, some among you have died because you're being disobedient and God is disciplining you in order to spare you from future judgment. There's discipline for those who are in Christ, for those who believe. 
And there is final judgment for those who finally don't believe. So Paul urges them, just as as he's urged them before, and as he sees them making real progress, in the way you relate to your own body and the bodies of others, love people rather than using them. So as we try to be on the alert, as we try to be careful, as we try to fight this battle during this awkward time of trying to make progress by the power of the Holy Spirit, by trust in Jesus, it gets difficult. We find ourselves stumbling. We find ourselves struggling. And we're in a world that promotes uh, not only that struggle, but just simply giving in. So I want to urge you, this is not only men. We know today that this is a problem for men as well as women. If, if you are actively in the struggle, if this is something that is continuing to draw you back, talk to somebody. Talk to someone. Talking to someone, taking that courageous step to talk to someone about this and to say, I, I'm, I'm not doing well. I want to make progress. I can't do it on my own. Talking to someone is one of the key tools that God uses for self-control. And it works. It makes a difference. When you know that there's someone else there with you that knows about this, it's going to ask you about it. It's going to ask you, are you making progress? Are you excelling still more? It helps. It works. It makes a difference. And I want to urge all of us, be ready for someone to talk to you. Be ready for somebody to come to you and say, this, this is me. This is where I am. I, 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 there, there are identifiable areas in this part of my life that need to change. I need to, I need to bear the image of God with purity and interact with other people in that way as well. And, and I'm not doing it well on my own. Let's each be ready to not be shocked when that comes. It's real. It's part of the process. Let, let's be ready to say to that brother, to that sister, the step you're taking now, right in this moment, is a step of progress toward holiness. And I, I want to be there with you to urge you, to encourage you, to help you to excel still more. The Lord is with you in this. I'm with you in this. I want to help you. Paul says, I want to urge you to love one another more and more in increasing sexual purity. And I want to urge you to love one another more and more in quiet productivity. Verses 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So here you are, you're you're learning to love one another. God himself is teaching you to love one another. You you would be doing this even if we didn't write to you. And yet God has called us into this partnership together. We want to be part of that. So we urge you to do what God himself is teaching you to do. To continue to grow in loving one another. And it's, it's not always something that goes viral. It's not always something that looks outwardly impressive. What he, the, the specific way in which he calls them to love one another more and more is something that would have perhaps felt really boring and 
menial and unimportant and something they would have avoided doing if they could. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to have an ambition to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Here here are the Thessalonians in a new community. They've entered into this new community in which people are of fundamentally equal worth. Men and women, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, everybody is of equal worth. And everybody is called to mutually love one another and to care for one another's needs. Now, if you are a daily laborer and you're tired of being a daily laborer, you're tired of of having to work for, for one day's food just to get up the next day and work for the next day's food. And now all of a sudden you've entered into a community where the call to everyone is to love one another and care for one another's needs. There's a temptation for you, isn't there? Suddenly I'm on equal footing spiritually with my rich brother over here. And he's called to love me. And I have uh, an opportunity to use that command to him, right? I have an opportunity to, to live off of him, to say, hey, brother, how about we share everything equally? How about, how about I live off of what you have? How about if I give up this hard life of working hard and you just support me? Paul says there's a better way for you to love your brothers. There's a better way for you to live. Your ambition should be to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. That description doesn't match the kind of aspiration or ambition that would have been normal among the Thessalonians. It would have been normal in Rome's time and it wouldn't be normal in our time either but it's a key part of sending the right message to those who don't yet know Christ. Of course, if you're in a community of people, uh, some of whom have a lot of money and who are on equal footing with you, well, then why don't you use that? Because you want to send the right message to those who haven't yet trusted Christ. Our purpose of living this way, continuing to work hard, continuing to bear God's image by doing work in order to provide for our needs is verse 12, that you may walk properly before outsiders to show them that brotherly love is not something to be used, to show them that brotherly love is not a back door to the wealth and resources of others. Paul says, I want you to love each other through a life of quiet productivity. He tells them here, as he has in the previous passage, I want you to do this more and more. And there's always room for it. There's never a time where we as Christians get to a, get to a place in any one of these categories where we're simply done, where, where there's no more good, no more of God's image, no more of God's priorities for us to experience. So maybe we don't find ourselves in the place of the Thessalonians. Uh, We might find ourselves in a place where we really are doing our daily work. We're not forcing other people to uh, provide for us. Uh, Maybe maybe we're we're done doing that work. Maybe for for many of us, we're in a place, you're in a place where you've 
saved sufficiently and your daily work isn't necessary to provide for your needs any longer, you're able to continue living on what the Lord has allowed you to save. There's always room for more excelling. There's always room for sharing the heart of God toward our work and the results of our work in fuller and fuller measure. The Thessalonians had opportunity to do this. It was not simply a matter of saying, work hard enough that you can be independent of other people. Their work had opportunity to overflow in goodness to others. As Paul writes, once again, to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about a phenomenon that's happening in Macedonia. Macedonia is where Thessalonica is. Macedonia is the place where the love of the Thessalonians is spreading. And it would not surprise me at all if that the spreading of the Thessalonian love, their gospel love, had a significant impact on what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 8. Paul says to the Corinthians, we want you to know, brothers, this is starting in verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Here they are having very little. They have some, but very little. They have the joy of the gospel, and those two things come together with a wealth of generosity to others. It overflows. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will. They sacrificed. And it was, it was not simply a matter of saying, well, we've been told to excel still more. Paul told us we got to do more. We can't stop. Uh, God's not satisfied with us yet. They longed to give. They had been, been given God's heart that longs to give. And so that overflowed. And so the way this looked was in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 8. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So there are Christians. These are Christians in Judea. Christians around Jerusalem who are really struggling. Who don't have enough to eat. And the Thessalonians are saying, please. The Macedonians are saying, please. Let us be a part of this. And it was not just money. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. There's always opportunity for us. There's always opportunity for us to, to, to have a heart that's more fully engaged in using our work and using the results of our work to bear the image of God to be those who love our brothers, to be those who love others rather than use others, to do that with an eager heart. And so Paul urges the Corinthians themselves by that example to participate in this. He writes to them in 2 Corinthians 9, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, 
so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. We certainly have that opportunity, the opportunity to excel still more in doing our daily work with with an eye to benefiting those around us, with an eye to increasing goodness in the world. And we have the opportunity to, to always be ready, to use the results of our work, to do so more and more, to bless those around us. To do that as bearers of the image of God. In one sense, these are fairly simple. Here's God restoring people to his image, restoring people to the way that he's designed them to operate within marriage, to operate within work, things that take up really a large percentage of our waking life. And there is always more for us. There is always, there are always more degrees of glory. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Father, you know that, that the, the form, the next degree of glory is, is different at, at each degree. So I pray that as we as we make progress, we would be encouraged by your grace, that we would be encouraged that your spirit is at work in our lives and that we would never consider ourselves hopeless when we see that there is more progress to be made. We thank you that as you move us from one degree of glory to another by your spirit, you're moving us toward that time when you will finish it, when we will see Christ and we will be made like him. We long for that day. We want to move toward it today. We pray that you would do that in us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.